We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they clean, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about your hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is corveying, that is devoted to God. Then you too, you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like that. Again, Jesus asked the crowd to turn to, um, Again, Jesus asked a crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. And he said and left the crowd and entered the house. The, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them, for it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all food clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, rudeness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your seats. 
was a long scripture reading. must be important. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the way that you speak to us through your word. And uh, Lord, no one needs to hear from me this morning, but all of us, myself included, need to hear from you. Uh, Lord, some of us come this morning optimistic about the new year. Uh, some of us come carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. Some of us come, Lord, seeking after you, trusting you, wanting to trust you more, wanting to love you more. Some of us come wondering if you are real, whether you even exist, whether any of the things that we've been singing about and talking about can be true. And Lord, all of us, all of us need the same thing. We need you to break into our lives. We need you to speak into our hearts. We need you to do the work that you alone can do, to give us the hope that you alone can give, a hope that we cannot give ourselves, a hope that this world cannot give us. And so, God, we pray that you would break through to each of us, for you know us intimately, each of us by name. And we pray that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Dave. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, like Brent said, we would love to meet you if we haven't had the chance to meet you after the service up front. Uh, we are back on track to a sermon series that we started in the fall. It's a, a series that's been taking us through the Gospel of Mark. And we've been calling this series The Way of Jesus. And we, we call it the way of Jesus because Jesus gives us a way that is different from any other way in this world. And he is a different person than any other type of religious leader or even secular leader. Jesus is different from anyone that we've ever seen or ever will see. Uh, he claimed to be God. He rose from the dead. He gives us a completely new way to live. He gives us a new way to love. Uh, he gives us a new way to forgive. He gives us a new way to deal with hurt, a new way to deal with fear and anxiety. And he gives us a new way to deal with religion, to think about religion. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning, Jesus and religion. Julian Barnes is a writer who wrote a memoir called Nothing to be Frightened of. And in this memoir, he at one point is talking to philosophers that do not believe in God. And he asks this poignant question. Would you rather there was nothing after death and you were proved right, or that there was a wonderful surprise and your professional reputation was destroyed? Uh, it may surprise you to know that Barnes actually doesn't believe in God himself. He is actually an atheist, but he is an atheist who is haunted by God. In fact, the very first line of his book, he writes, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. He, you see, what, what Barnes understands about religion, what he understands about the quest for God, it is, is that it is something of ultimate significance. If there is a God, it has to change everything. So much so that you would be willing to give up your professional reputation 
and everything else. Throughout history, people have debated the existence of God and the significance of God and whether religion is actually good for the world or bad for the world. But at the end of the day, the question that really matters most is the question that Julian Barnes is asking. Would you rather that there was nothing after death and you were proven right or that there was a wonderful surprise and that your reputation was destroyed? To put it another way, is religion something that can, you can prove or disprove through your expertise or is it a wonderful surprise that makes everything else irrelevant? And the way that you answer that question will shape everything that you believe about religion and how you consider religion. Now, today's passage is a long passage. In fact, it's the longest discussion recorded in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a discussion about this question. Is religion something that you could prove through your expertise, or is it a wonderful surprise that changes everything? On the one side, you have these religious leaders, these religious professionals who come to Jesus, and they're trying to win an argument. But on the other side, you have Jesus, who Mark has been claiming is the wonderful surprise. Jesus is the wonderful surprise, and if you know him, he will change everything, so much so that you would be willing to give up your reputation and everything else in order to follow him. So let's break down this passage by looking at three things. We're going to look, number one, at the goal of religion. Number two, we're going to look at the problem of religion. And finally, we're going to look at the hope of Jesus. So let's start with the goal of religion. This whole discussion that we've read is a, really a disagreement about purity. That's what this discussion is about. A group of religious leaders from Jerusalem saw that Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands before eating. And you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's kind of gross. You should wash your hands before you eat. And we are more aware of the need to wash our hands than ever before on the other side of this pandemic. And even now, with COVID and the flu and RSV and all sorts of diseases floating around, even now we understand the importance of washing our hands. But that's not what the religious leaders were talking about here. They were not talking about hygiene they were not talking about public health. What they're talking about actually is religion. See, in the Old Testament, you were considered clean or unclean. This was a, a metaphor that God used in the Old Testament to describe morality. When you did what was right and good and obeyed God's laws, especially his ceremonial laws about what made you clean and unclean, you would be considered clean or unclean. And if you were unclean, you would need to be cleansed before you could be with other people or worship God or go into his presence. Even if you touched something that was unclean or someone who was unclean, it would make you unclean. You could read all about these, these very detailed and specific and strange laws about clean and unclean in the book of Leviticus. It's not an easy read, but it's actually very important uh, to understand this, this thing that actually all of us are looking for. See, why does the Old Testament have all these laws about being clean and unclean? Well, these laws are all a reminder to all of us that we live in a fallen world, a world with death, 
a world with sickness, a world with disease, a, a world with immorality and evil and oppression and exploitation. It is a reminder to us that things are not the way that they are supposed to be. And this is what every religion is looking for. Every religion is looking for a way for us to feel clean. And some of you might be thinking, well, this is exactly what I hate about religion. I hate that religious people are making other people feel unclean, feel dirty, like there's something wrong with them. But what if I told you that you don't need to actually have a religion to be religious? Last year, uh, there was a great article, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and it was called The Empty Religions of Instagram. It was written by a woman named Lee Stein. And at one point, listen to what she writes. She says, many millennials who have turned their backs on religious tradition because it isn't sufficiently diverse or inclusive have found alternative scripture online. Our new belief system is a blend of left-wing political orthodoxy, intersectional feminism, self-optimization, therapy, wellness, astrology, and Dolly Parton. <laughs> she continues, and we found a kind of clergy, personal growth influencers, women like Ms. Doyle, she, this is one of the influencers that she writes a lot about in this article, who offer nuns like us permission, validation, and community on demand at a time when it's nearly impossible to share communion in person. We don't even have to put down our phones. She's on to something here. See, Instagram influencers are basically teaching their followers how to be clean. Because all of us have this sense that there is something wrong with us, something dirty about us, something that needs to be cleaned up, and we all need help. We can't do it ourselves. We need help cleaning up our lives. Next time you go on Instagram, just look at an influencer and look at the comments and notice how many amens and hallelujahs and prayer hand emojis there are in the comments section. So you don't need to have a religion to be religious. And the goal of religion is to give you a way to make yourself feel clean. Some of you are thinking, well, I don't use Instagram, right? But you're not off the hook. See, do you play sports? What would you do if somebody said that you were a dirty player? Wouldn't you try to defend yourself? What if at work somebody said that you, that, that you were doing dirty business? Wouldn't you want to defend yourself? What if somebody called you a dirty old man, right? Wouldn't you want to defend yourself? These are things no one wants to be called because we all have this sense that, 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 that we don't want to be dirty. We want to be clean. And this is, this is embedded in our language. When you eat clean, that doesn't mean that you wash your food really well before you cook. It means that you avoid food that is bad for you. We all have this sense that there is something wrong with us, that we're unclean, and we need to be clean. And when other people do something that's dirty, it bothers us. And so when the religious leaders, they saw Jesus and his disciples and saw that they didn't wash their hands before eating their food, they, they started a religious debate with them. They thought that they had caught Jesus and his disciples in religious failure, moral failure. 
But Jesus didn't agree with their understanding of what is clean and unclean and how one can become clean. And this brings us to the second thing that we want to look at this morning, the problem with religion. Well, what do people in our culture say the problem with religion is? We think the problem with religion is that it is intolerant, that it is repressive, and that it makes people self-righteous. And if you read Jesus' response in this passage, you'll see that actually Jesus agrees with all those things and that Jesus also is against intolerance, repression, and self-righteousness. And he disagrees with the religion of the religious leaders in the New Testament. He starts his response in verse 6 by calling the religious leaders hypocrites. In the New Testament Greek, a hypocrite was a word for actor. And so what's Jesus saying when he calls these religious leaders hypocrites? He's saying, you are acting holier than you are. Your version of religion is not real. It is an act. You're putting on an act. You are actually worse on the inside than you look on the outside. And that's why you can't clean yourself up. And he, he, he goes on to point out one of the ways that they act better than they are. And he says, basically, that they're playing by house rules. Have you ever gone over to someone's house to play Monopoly and they have really weird house rules? It's like the worst, worst experience. Because those house rules always advantage the people living in the house, right? <laughs> And this is what Jesus is saying about these religious leaders. He's saying, you're trying to play this religious game by house rules. Uh, listen to what he says. He says, let go of the commands. Uh, he says that they let go of the commands of God and held on to human tradition. That's what Jesus is saying. You're not, you're not playing fair. You're playing by your own set of rules, human tradition. And, and this is actually evident in the text. That's why Mark explains this whole hand-washing thing so much, and he very specifically calls it the tradition of the time, because if you read the Old Testament, you will find nowhere where it says you need to wash your hands before you eat your food. You will find some places where it tells priests that they need to wash themselves before making a sacrifice in the temple or the tabernacle. But there's nothing like this. This is actually a human tradition that was invented sometime between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when Pharisees and religious leaders washed their hands before eating, they didn't scrub for 30 seconds with soap. They actually just splashed water on their hands ceremonially as a show of their righteousness. Jesus is saying, you're just playing by house rules. You look down on other people who aren't playing by your house rules. These house rules don't exist to make you a good person. They exist so that you can look down on others who can't play by your rules. Instead of judging yourself by God's perfect standard, you use your rules to judge others with your imperfect standard. Now, there is this religious idea that if you add rules to God rules, that'll make you a holier person and a more righteous person and a better person. But what it actually does is the opposite. When you add your rules to God, God's rules, it doesn't make you a better person. It makes you a more intolerant person. It makes you a more judgmental person. It makes you into a hypocrite. 
Jesus goes down to expose the problem with their religion by talking about this strange religious tradition called Corbin. Corbin was basically an ancient practice of devoting your goods, your money, your property to God before you died. And this still happens today. You, people, you could write in your will that your money or your property will go to a charity when you die. This still happens today. And on the surface, it sounds very generous. It sounds like it's amazing that you would be so generous to donate all of this to God's work. But what Jesus points out is that the way it often works out is that it results in cruelty. Because what happens is that when your elderly parents come to you asking for help, people would say, well, I can't help you because I've already committed all my money to God. To, to, to help you right now would be like stealing for God, and so I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry I can't help you. And Jesus is saying, this is not righteous, this isn't good, this isn't moral, this is actually abusive. And some of you, some of you have suffered from spiritual abuse. Some of you have suffered from a religious person who was supposed to be there for you, who acted like they were doing something holy, but actually were... They just, they just hurt you. Maybe it was a parent who was never there for you because they were always at church. And in moments of crisis, they were always absent because they were doing God's work. Or maybe you went to a church where there was a scandal that was covered up in order for God's work to continue. Or maybe you were around someone who seemed all put together, but whenever they interacted with you, they had nothing but daggers for you. Nothing but words, hurtful words of abuse. See, religion that is characterized by repression, I'm going to hold back in order to obey God, always results in cruelty and at its worst, even abuse. Now, the last thing that Jesus points out here, the reason why religion does not work, the reason why none of us can clean ourselves up is because all of us are too impure. In verse 15, Jesus says, nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of her person that defiles them. In other words, Jesus is saying defilement, impurity, it's not something that you can avoid by making the right choices. It is unavoidable because it is actually inside of us, not outside of us. There's this great scene in the book, Pilgrim's Progress, and the main character, Christian, finds himself in a dusty room that has never been cleaned, never. And he, takes, he sees a man who takes a, a broom and, and he, starts, he starts sweeping this dusty room and what do you think happens? The, the dust flies up into the air and to the point where you, you could hardly see and hardly breathe. See, trying to clean that dusty room with a, with a broom actually doesn't clean the room, it only makes it messier. And there's a man named the interpreter, and he explains what Christian is seeing. And he says that the man sweeping the room represents God's law. And, and what he's saying is that when you try to clean yourself up by God's law, when you try to clean yourself up by following rules, you will only make yourself messier. Because the dirtiness is not outside of you, it is inside of you. See, the goal of religion is to help you clean yourself, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work because all of us are far too messy inside. 
We're hypocritical. We're too cruel. We are too impure. And so what's the answer? Is there hope for any of us? How can any of us become clean? Well, you see, the clean laws of the Old Testament never were meant to make you clean. That's the point that Jesus is making here. They were meant to point you to the fact that you cannot clean yourself up and that you need a Savior, which is what brings us to the last thing, the hope of Jesus. Do you know what you need to clean a dusty room that has never been swept? You need water. You need water. Because water is not going to scatter the dust. Water is going to be absorbed into the dirt. And that's what Jesus does with our sin. He actually absorbs our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus doesn't make us righteous by telling us what we need to do to clean ourselves up. He makes us righteous by absorbing our sin. Jesus lived a perfect life so he could be pure water for our filthy sin. There's a long list of uncomfortable sins that Jesus explains and lists here to describe our impurity. But listen to the way that Jesus absorbs these sins. See, Jesus never committed sexual immorality so that he could absorb all your lustful thoughts and actions. He never committed theft so he could absorb all your envy, all your greed, and even your crimes. He never murdered so he could absorb all your murderous thoughts, all your hostility, all your hurtful intentions. He never committed adultery so that he could absorb all your unfaithfulness. He never committed slander. He never was arrogant. He was never foolish in his decisions so that he could absorb your slanderous spirit, your arrogant heart, and your foolish decisions. When Jesus died on the cross, God made Jesus absorb your sin. He became your sin, and he cleans you because your sin no longer belongs to you. It belongs to him. But that's not all that Jesus does. Uh, Revelation 7.14 describes heaven as a place where sinners have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus is what one theologian calls strange detergent. Strange detergent. Instead of staining, it cleanses. How can this be? It's possible because God not only makes Jesus our sin, he makes you Jesus' righteousness. There's a double exchange on the cross. Jesus gets your sin, you get his righteousness. And what that means is that when God sees you, he doesn't see a clean slate. He doesn't, see, he doesn't give you a second chance. He looks at you clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and he says, you are already pure, you are already spotless, you already have no blemish, you are already perfect. You are mine. Imagine that you have this old rundown building in Oakland that you're selling. And uh, this, is, this, this would be a happy dream for me because I'm renting. Imagine that you own a, a, but an old rundown building that you're selling and a buyer, prospective buyer comes and says, um, you know, well, tell, tell me about this building. What do I need to know? Um, tell me about this place. 
and, and you start to explain to the buyer, well, don't worry. I know it doesn't look like much, but we're going to fix the pipes before, before we sell it. We're going to put a fresh coat of paint on it. It's going to look so much better. You'll hardly be able to recognize it. And the buyer just kind of looks uh, with a puzzled look on, on his face and says, you think I'm going to remodel this building? I don't want the building. I just want the land. I'm actually going to tear everything down to the studs and build a mansion in its place. And you see, this is what God is saying to every single one of us. We come to God and we say, God, don't worry. I'm going to put a fresh cone of paint on my life. I'm going to do better. I'm going to try harder. I am going to follow the rules better. I've even made house rules to make me a better person. And God says, you think I want your janky old house? I'm making you into a mansion. I'm making you into a mansion. Have you ever driven somewhere and saw a, a beautiful house so big and, and asked, I wonder who lives there? You know, I used to live in Fremont, and MC Hammer's house is in Fremont, and you, you, can, you can see from the gate, M, you know, MC, and you, you, you could see that's, that's Hammer's house, you know, and you, you say that's, that's, you know, that's where Hammer would live. And God is saying, you know, God is saying to us in Jesus that when, when he looks at you right now, he sees a mansion. He sees the mansion that he's making you into, and one day, others will see it too. One day, people will look at your life, and they will, they will say, God must live there. Jesus must live there. What an incredible life. What a beautiful life. How did this person get this way? God must live there. And some of you are thinking, that sounds great, but my life is such a mess right now. How can I believe that that is true? How can I believe that God is at work in my life? And first, you, you, you can't believe it by looking at yourself. You can only believe it by looking at Jesus, because when you see Jesus, you see that Jesus, God already sees you as that mansion. But the other thing you need to remember is if you've ever been around a construction project, you know that it is messy. If you've ever remodeled your home, you know that it is messy. Sometimes the mess can get so big that you can't even live in your home while the work's being done. But what matters in Jesus is not the mess, but the plan. Because God is at work, and he will not rest. And one day, whether, even though it may be impossible to believe right now, one day God will make your life so glorious and so beautiful that people will look at you and say, God must live there. And that's what this table represents. This table represents the work in progress of God's grace. This meal may not look like much. It's just small pieces of bread and wine and juice. But here is God's pledge at this table. And through the Holy Spirit, who, who makes Jesus present with us here, this table declares to us that God is at work and he will not rest until we are the mansions that he created us to be not because of our effort, not because of what we've done, but because of who Jesus is and who, what Jesus has done. On the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and gave thanks and he broke it and he said, this is my body for you. Take this, eat this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, the wonderful surprise, a wonderful surprise that we don't need to wait until we die to discover a wonderful surprise that we can encounter here and now through faith. And God, we thank you for this table that sustains us in this surprise, and we pray that as we eat this, that we eat of Jesus' body and drink from his cup, Lord, that you would build up our faith and fill us with wonder that we are so loved by a God who is so great. And for any who do not know you, Lord, we pray that this might be the day of discovery, the day of faith, of day of reaching out to you and holding on to you. And for those who are in process, God, we pray, Lord, that you would pursue them and that you would continue, Lord, to give them a space to process their doubts. And God, all this we ask because, Lord, we know that you alone can give us life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.